This time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Can you feel that? Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched a weird freaking episode that yes. either it either has no message, which I actually would prefer, or it has <laughs> a horrible detestable message that we'll get into later that's kind of yeah. Nazi-y. Oh dear. Hmm. Well, yeah. Welcome to the empath. Yeah, the empath. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so who we got here guest starring here? Yeah. <laughs> well, first, this was written by Joyce Musket, who uh, wrote this and only this ever. Ever, ever. This was an unsolicited script, which is one of like three or four that they used from women who wrote into the show, which, interesting sidebar, I've talked about this before, women made up almost 100% of the Star Trek fan base for the first three years of its runtime, and a long while after, men didn't start coming into this particular sci-fi fandom until much later during the conventions. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating how there, there's, you know, there's this, it, Star Trek is sort of seen as this very male-dominated thing now, but that wasn't always the case, guys. That is the entire reason that Chekhov exists, because they wanted yeah. <laughs> a hot beetle-looking guy to get the women in there, because exactly. their fan base was young women. So I don't know, tell it's... me that you don't want women in your Star Trek. <laughs> it was already going for the sex appeal with Chekhov. Chekhov was the original Seven of Nine. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, she... Uh, put in an unsolicited script. They liked it. They bought it. Uh, she never had any other TV writing credits. Well, um, I'm not going to say I'm too upset by that after this one, though. <laughs> Catherine Hayes is playing Jim. And the holograms? No, but, I mean, that's not the last of those jokes we're going to get, so. <laughs> no, not the utterly ridiculous mid-80s cartoon show about a woman who has a supercomputer that turns her into a glam rock star. No, Jim, the empath. The original Hannah Montana. Pretty much, actually, yeah. Yeah, the gem path, as her friends say. <laughs> anyway, Catherine Hayes was known later on for her role as Kim Hughes on As the World Turns, but she was also on other shows like The Lieutenant and Man from Uncle. I believe she also uh, shows up in uh, at least one episode, Law and Order. So many people on this show were in The Lieutenant. It's like they were some sort of connection. Yes. <laughs> I guess Carol Wyden. We also have Alan Bergman who's playing Lal. I never use any of their names. This is one of the alien villains. Yeah, they're just sort of there. They don't really get names, I guess. They the sort of get names, and the transcript lists them by name, but it was very complicated to try to keep track of them, so I didn't bother. Uh, this guy uh, shows up in a Mannix, I believe. Yeah, Mannix, Six Million Dollar Man. And other general shows. Uh, started as a New York actor, later moved into Hollywood. Also, Willard Sage plays Than. 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 I don't know why. I have to yell it in this weird southern drawl. Than. Than. What are you doing, Than? Than. Get that turtle soup over here for the possums. <laughs> not, not gonna, if, if they don't get their free, uh, feed soon, they're going to be real upset at you. I apologize anyway, to the south. 
generally. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Willard Sage, uh, back to him. He was also uh, on a lot of contemporary shows uh, like Perry, Perry Mason, uh, best known and remembered for his re- slightly reoccurring role on Hogan's Heroes, but he died not long after that in uh, 1974. 1974. He was also on Bonanza. Everyone was on Bonanza. And Name a Western and all of these people were in it. <laughs> so, so we're running out of opportunities to just list off random Westerns from the 60s at this point. Because <laughs> we're getting close to the end of the original series here, but it's still kind of amusing. <laughs> yep. Everyone was in a random Western. Because this is a Western in space. Starting in the long-running space. tradition of Westerns in space. Except it's yes. a boat show in yeah, space. But, but it's not quite like pirates or like Southeast Asia, you know, a trade vessel. But kind of at the same time. Anyway. All right, let's get into this because this is an absolute mess of... Well, before we get to that, are we going to talk about the ninjas at all? No, we're never talking about them. The empath. Though the Enterprise is investigating a star system nearing a supernova. Yet again, these things seem to be a dime a dozen. Hmm, wait a moment. Maybe there's some sort of super powerful entities out there. They're having a, uh, a massive civil war at this point of time, and it's blowing up stars left and right. That would be an utterly ridiculous plot, and I don't know what would make you think of that. It's like they'd frame it as some sort of civil war show. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be so confusing. And, uh, and yeah, you got, you, you, maybe there'd be some way to like for the, the crew to enter that world. But anyway, uh, back to this episode. I mean, uh, that's just one of my favorite episodes because there's nothing I've ever seen John Lance in that was bad. Yes. <laughs> so goofy. Anyway. <laughs> Spock, Kirk, and McCoy beam down to a dusty lab that has apparently been abandoned for some time. Soon after a solar flare from the soon-to-be-exploding sun forces the Enterprise out of orbit, and leaving the crew stranded on the planet until it subdues. So I guess uh, we're going to be stuck here, and uh, you know, Scotty will just have to come back and pick us up later. All right, that's, you know, as long as we're protected by the atmosphere, it should be fine. The crew is able to find record tapes from the planet-side researchers who are going about their normal day with some minor griping and not particularly getting along, as far as I can tell. When suddenly a noise starts, they grab their heads and one by one vanish. As you do. That's what I do when I uh, hear a weird noise that's really annoying. As soon as the crew sees this, they hear the same noise and also vanish. Now that's kind of funky timing. Maybe, maybe, maybe playing the tape reactivated the sound thing, Jig. So this is, everything that happens is their own fault. It's also like this is hackney writing, and as soon as they introduce a plot point, they have to use it a second later, so there was basically no point in introducing it at all. Yep. <laughs> they awaken in a huge black room with an illuminated bed in the center containing a sleeping woman. Suddenly, feel like we're in community theater time. Yeah, it was very much community theater time. It was it was like one big room and one bed the entire time. Theater in the round. She wakes up as they approach and mimes fear with very exaggerated gestures the whole time. The entire yes. time. Everything she does is exaggerated. She prances around like she's ballet dancing and does big mimey freeze things. Basically watching a silent movie. Yeah, or a, a really excited mime. McCoy scans her and discovers that she has no vocal cords at all. Well, that's kind of uh, you know unusual, but uh, I guess you know she's an alien, even though she looks exactly like a human, and uh, so you can have all sorts of crazy bi- uh, biology under the skin. Also, it, a humanoid species could not have evolved on this planet, given what they know about its specific gravity. Okie dokie, then. So she can't be native. So she was abducted here as well. All right. They decide that since she can't talk, 
And for some reason, they don't want to refer to her as the woman or hey you. They will name her. Well, that's kind of reasonable. They will name her Jem. Okay. Because <laughs> she's a Jem, I guess. <laughs> Just then, two aliens appear. They introduce themselves as Vians. Oh, hello, Vian. They tell the crew not to interfere with what they're doing. Kirk tries to interfere anyway, and they use their weapons to shoot him and then trap them all behind a force field that they say derives power from their own body energy. So what you're saying is if you were to enter some sort of deep uh, meditation or state, you could potentially turn off the force field. Neat. Yeah, maybe. They do something to Jem and then go away, along with the force field. I think these aliens might be assholes. Kirk has been hurt on his head. Jim sees this and touches the cut, and then it disappears and appears on her head, where it then disappears again. Well, that seems like an unnecessarily, uh, you know, transfer of uh, a major wound. Ouch. <laughs> Wait a moment. She's the inspiration for E.T. Yes. According to McCoy, the woman can do this because she is a super empath. She's so empathic that her nervous system will copy or link to anything she touches, including taking on physical pain from others, which somehow heals them and then super heals herself. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, but it's not just the pain, it's like the physical injury, like, suddenly there's this big gash in your head, too, and it's bleeding, and then suddenly it's gone, and the blood's gone. It doesn't really make any sense, but that's fine. No, it doesn't. They don't know what an empath is. Yes. So there's that. So yeah, they're just sort of applying this term and uh, defining it as this for the episode. In the meantime, Spock has found a way out of the room. Oh, that's cool. Go, go Spock. They find their way into what appears to be a lab, which is an equally large black room, just with computers and tubes in it instead of beds. Is this some sort of tube? Two of these some sort of tubes have men that they saw before. They appear to be dead. There's three tubes next to them with the names of the crew written on them. Oh no, they're going to be tubed as well. These aliens are apparently fastidious about their labeling. It's like, yeah, we would barely talk to these you know, people that beam down to our planet here, and uh, we already got their names on file and uh, all, uh, all these tubes are labeled up for them. One of the aliens appears to explain that the two humans that are dead died from their imperfections. It wasn't his fault. Wait a moment, imperfections? Some sort of crazy technology? Getting Borg vibes suddenly. But they need more humans to do experiments. Spock knocks out the alien, and they grab his gun and leave. But then the alien, like, wakes up after. Apparently he was fine and was just pretending to be knocked out. Haha, they followed my trap by escaping, ho <laughs> ho! Spock suggests they should run because he's found stairs, and they, you know, get to the surface. Oh, that was an easy escape. Are we, like, are we even like halfway through the episode by this point? Nope. Hmm, that doesn't sound, doesn't bode well, actually. <laughs> There's a lot of strong wind as Jim and the crew try to make it back to the research station. They see that the aliens are just standing around watching them, unconcerned. Like, hey dudes, uh, we're going to go go hide over there now. Bye. They watch them all running around and comment on Kirk's great will to live. Well, he is sort of the guy that's been assigned that uh, particular, uh, you know, character trait for the series. So I guess that makes sense. They can observe the obvious. The crew approaches the research station and sees Scotty and a rescue team waving at them to get closer. Hey, Scotty. What's up? They're about to escape. Hooray. Hooray. 
When they get there, Scotty and the others disappear because they were very obvious fakes that weren't even you know, moving around much. Well, that's kind of kind of a bummer. Now we don't have any competent people on the planet. The aliens return and offer that they've decided that they only need one person. So if Kirk will agree to be their experiment subject, the others will be okay. Okay. Yeah. Kirk agrees to this and the others disappear and Kirk is angry and... He tries to get to the aliens, and there's some weird slow motion something or other that happens. It's it's all weird. It's all very, very, very weird. And obviously the Time Lords are showing up and messing with the flow of time, so you perceive everything normally, but everything is is happening much slower. Mm. Clearly this is what's going on. There, makes sense. <laughs> they take Kirk back to the lab where he expects to be tortured for information, but the aliens aren't interested in anything that he could tell them. They just torture him for fun. Yeah, these guys are jerk faces. Bringing out all the torture and for no good reason. Yep, they again claim to have not killed the two humans from before because they were killed by their own fear. Oh my god, it's not our fault at all. And then they just start torturing Kirk because, you know, so, so you, so you tortured them so hard that they had like anxiety attacks that killed them. One would assume. I, that's, I think you're still the, the the torture that got them there, guys. Come on. No, it's not their fault they couldn't survive a little torturing. What's a little torturing between friends? Well, I, I will say that these aliens are seeming very alien for this episode. <laughs> Back in the bedroom, the door that they left through is now gone. So McCoy and Spock have been waiting around. That's about it. I mean they haven't been rescued? They haven't been sent back to the ship or left let to, uh, to go free? They've been kept here the entire time? Well, Kirk was tortured after thinking he'd let them go free? Yeah, it's like the aliens lied or something. Yeah, I don't think you can trust these assholes. Kirk and Jem reappear as McCoy and Spock are trapped behind a force field. Kirk is extremely, extremely injured, and Jem starts to heal him like before, but gets scared because it's too much injury. So McCoy urges her to continue... Which she does, and then she collapses. And then the force field is removed. Yeah, well, um, well, if Kirk was going to die, is she going to die now, or what? Uh, McCoy examines her and says that he has no idea if she takes on enough injury that she could possibly die. It obviously causes her some amount of physical stress, but he assumes that she has some sort of self-preservation instinct that would kick in before she dies. It's good we have uh, basically a medical tricorder with uh, you know her own personality here, but... Uh... Can we still get out of here? What's up? Now, it's also like a self-preservation instinct that she was demonstrating by stopping yes. before she got <laughs> seriously hurt and you told her to do anyway. Yeah, she didn't want to like take on any more pain, but you know, McCoy, you're just like, yeah, just make sure everyone's healed up. You'll be fine. Spock thinks that it's a little weird that they still have this alien gun thing. Yeah, they just didn't, never picked that up from them. Because like, why would they... Let him keep that. But he's spending some time figuring out how it would work. The aliens come back and tell Kirk that they need to do more experiments. That he has to choose either McCoy, who will certainly die, or Spock, who will live but be driven mad. So basically it's doomed for either one of them. Yep. Now, now there is a chance they could come through without, without any uh, major injuries. It's just very, 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 very small. Later on, Spock has basically worked out how to use the gun doodah. Uh, McCoy is trying to convince everyone that he's the logical choice to go through the experiments, but Kirk refuses to let him choose 
but Kirk, still being injured, gets a hypospray from McCoy to knock him out because uh-huh. McCoy's tricksy like that. Yes. But now Spock's in command and goes, well, I'm going then. McCoy goes, darn it, and then knocks out Spock too, just as the aliens show up to take him away to start torturing him. So uh, uh, this, I think this is one of the uh, first instances where there's just the doctor is just running around with the, you know, the, the quote, the off button hypospray, just knocking people out left and right. Yep. It's like, I'm in command now. Ha ha. You're knocked out. You're knocked out. <laughs> Everyone go to sleep. <laughs> when Kirk and Spock wake up, Spock gets the gun thingy working. Uh, it also apparently controls the teleporter and all the other doodahs. Again, he comments on how weird it is that they left him with this simple thing he could definitely understand like they wanted them to be able to escape. But instead of escaping, they're going to transport into the lab and mount a rescue. Wait a moment. Maybe this is part of their evil plan to get McCoy rescued. They all arrive to find McCoy chained to the ceiling nearly dead. Um, McCoy, I, I, I don't think BDSM is McCoy's uh, you know, uh, wheelhouse there. Uh, just a feeling. Spock scans him with the medical tricorder to discover massive internal injuries and that he could die at any time. This scares Jim, who runs away into the corner, apparently terrified of McCoy. Well, McCoy did uh, almost get her killed before, so uh, I guess that she's afraid that he'll uh, yell at her to heal him, and maybe she's scared of that or something, maybe? maybe? Kirk tries this because he wants her to at least partially heal McCoy so that maybe he won't die as fast or something. Uh, unclear whether or not this can work. But a force field suddenly stops him from getting close to Jim, and the aliens come back. Oh no! Um, so, so what do we do now? This is the final phase of the alien experiments, as they explain. Jim has to choose whether or not to save McCoy by herself, because you see, this is a super advanced race of aliens who know that their son is going to explode, and they have the technology to save one of the other civilizations in their system that is going to be destroyed when the sun does explode. Jim is from one of these other civilizations, and they have been testing her to see if she is worthy for that civilization to be saved, and they do that by torturing other people to see if she can empathically learn how to sacrifice herself for other people. This is kind of messed up when you think about it. Very. Yeah. So the idea is she has to be willing to sacrifice her own life to save McCoy, but otherwise they're just going to let everyone die. They're, these aliens, they, have some, they need to take an ethics class, I think. Jim does, in fact, try to heal McCoy, but he pushes her away because he would rather die than let her kill herself to save him. Well, I guess that kind of makes sense. You know, he's a doctor. You know, he's, you know, first rules, do no harm and that sort of thing. And... Well, she's basically going to be harming herself in order to save his life. Kirk goes, hey, see, she's willing to sacrifice herself. Let us all go now. And they go, no, it doesn't count unless she actually dies. What? (laughs) So you're not going to swoop in the last second and make sure everyone's okay? Nope. Wow. Spock suddenly decides that since the force fields feed off their own body energies, he can have enough not emotions that he can leave, and he does. Oh, so the whole sort of sit down and meditate for a little bit, focus your mind and sort of go through with a non-resistance sort of thing which is workable. All right. That he only just figured that out now, apparently. He takes one of the alien gun things and lets out Kirk. They demand that the aliens stop what they're doing, but they still don't want to. So he gives up their guns and says, well, here, if all you understand is death, we're going to stay here and die with our friend. And Jim can sense this, so she's going to know that we're willing to die with our friend. And the aliens go, oh my god, you're right! And they heal McCoy and they leave. And that's kind of it. 
Back on the ship, Kirk muses about how great it was that this horrible torture experiment at least let them meet Jim. And Scotty tells them the story of the pearl of great price or whatever. And he says there was this merchant and he saw a pearl. And then he bought it. Cool. That's the end of my story. (laughs) (laughs) So the merchant values things? Yes, the merchant saw something he wanted and then bought it with money. Okay, and I guess the Vulcans could learn something from all this. Yeah, Kirk goes, hey Spock, isn't it great human emotions saved the day again, even though your unemotionalness is what lets you out of the force field and actually saved us all, but never mind, ha ha ha, the end. (sighs) Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's so much to unpack here. Yeah. So, uh, so where do you want to start? All right, let's start with the simplest one, which is what in the frick is an empath? Because they don't know. So uh, I, I believe generally it's considered someone who is able to sense, feel, perceive, etc. Uh, the emotions of other people's, uh, other people around them, and you know, to varying degrees feel those things for themselves as well. So if someone is being, you know, very happy, they'll feel more happy. If someone's very sad, they'll feel more sad. Uh, and if they're angry, be angry in that case. Um, but um, you got more to add there? Well, this is basically it. In science fiction and fantasy genres, it can be caused by some sort of latent psychic or magical ability, and it's something supernatural. But this is something that all social species, as far as we can know, do. Uh, they've done very recent experiments to prove that rats have mirroring empathy, Uh we believe that this works by something we call mirror neurons, if you want to get into the neuroscience, which I'm always a little dubious of. But, you know, the mirroring is basically you are able to see another person and essentially feel more or less what they are feeling if you have experienced it. It works on all kinds of levels. They did an experiment where they had people watch sports. And if you had played the sport before, your mind was displaying the same kind of patterns from watching someone play the sport as it did when you yourself played the sport. So you're sort of living vicariously through the other person in that case. That's a way that you could put it, yes. And uh, it makes you, as a person, feel actual physical and mental discomfort when you see someone else being harmed. That's the basic thing. So it lets you better understand other people and better communicate without having to go through a bunch of like verbal language and other things, it was probably something that predated vocal communication in order to let a social species evolve. So you get this sort of thing going first, and then as you know, you start developing the ability to vocalize, then you put words to these emotions, but the emotions will be coming first. And there have been a few cases of people uh, that you would call extreme impasse that for one reason or another, um, they always want to ascribe some sort of physical thing to this, like something's different in their brain. I could see some explanations to do with uh, past trauma or other things that would make this necessary for someone to do. But in any event, there have been examples of people with such a strong empathic ability for lack of a better word that when they are around other people they feel their emotions so strongly that they feel they lose any sense of themselves which is not pleasant it makes them usually not like being around other people all that much because they will like very very viscerally feel 
pain or other emotions and tend to take on too many attributes of the other person that they're around and feel like they don't get to have any of their own personality. So it's a pretty unpleasant experience if you have to go too overboard on this empathic thing. But uh, being empathic does not mean you suck out people's injuries. You can, for lack of a better term, feel their pain. Like a lot of people have experienced this. If you see like a movie often or just someone get hurt, in a way that you relate to and you go, ah, and it feels uncomfortable on that part of your body. Basically that. Yeah. It's, it's like those, uh, those videos on the YouTubes where uh, people are like, you know, playing on their, their skateboards and suddenly, you know, if you're a guy and they, they encounter a, a railing in a certain fashion, you're like, Ugh, and such like that. So, so the guys now know what's going on. <laughs> yep. And even if you're a woman, I understand that's quite uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's not what they're saying it is in this episode, but what th- is being demonstrated in this episode is something you see occasionally in other science fiction. Uh, in fact, you know, you know, through either you know telepathic, magical, or technological sort of means, you know, the, whatever MacGuffin you like at the time. Uh, and uh, this episode actually reminded me a little bit of an episode of Babylon Five, uh, where there was actually a technological uh, option for this, where there was a lady that was. Uh, nearing the end of her life, she had a terminal uh, illness and had this had discovered this alien device that allowed her to use some of her life energy to heal other people. Uh, and since she figures she's not going to die anyway, it's like, yeah, I'll give somebody something up to everybody else. And sure, it might take a few months off my life, but okay, I'll be able to do something nice for other people in the meantime. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, the 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 twist there though was you know not having to learn em- empathy. There was. Uh, there's there's a, a there's two plots going on. The other plot involved uh, a serial killer who was you know, who would, who was trying to who got shot and was trying to find some medical help and track this lady down and you know tried to force her to use it to heal him. And she's like, Nah, I'm gonna reverse things here. Now you got my deadly syndrome. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's this kind of thing that pops up uh, occasionally in science fiction, uh, but I don't think I've ever heard it described as being empathy or empathicness here other than in this episode just kind of weird to me so i don't know how much i agree with this as an idea but the basic framework that you're presented with when you have someone is literally taking on someone else's pain in order to heal them or it's shortening your lifespan or something. This is a science fiction physical manifestation of the toll that it can take to help other people, which seems fairly topical right now. Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, it'll be slightly less topical. Fingers crossed. Because there's a lot of people right now, uh, while we're recording this, who are either in lockdown or, on the other uh, end of things, uh, struggling to help people uh, that are sick, not, uh, you know, so, you know uh, helping them get through all that, um, and otherwise try and make their lives easier. And uh, a lot of the times they're, uh, you know, working long hours and uh, they're going to be doing such for a good long while here. And uh, and it's really taking a toll on them because, you know, if you're, if there's, because there's a limited number of people with the qualifications and a lot more people that are sick than normal at the moment. Well, that's part of the thing is this is always or very, very often at least shown as a negative that certain people endure for the good of others. And that's not always the case. And treating it like that has led to some things in the current situation, because 
we chronically underfund, understaff, under-resource people who are in positions to help because you're supposed to think of it as this like weird altruistic thing that they're doing that they've accepted a certain amount of harm but it's it's not supposed to be something that causes harm helping other people can be difficult but it doesn't necessarily harm you it can be incredibly rewarding if you are given enough time resources and energy to do it properly but if we are uh, describing you as heroes over and over again forever then that absolves us of having to pay you enough and make sure you have enough staff i guess there's this metaphor that I see people use that I partially agree with, but I feel like people are using the metaphor incorrectly, which is if you see someone who's drowning and you swim out to try to save them, they, in their panic, are going to try to pull you under as well, which is 100% true. I knew people who worked as lifeguards. This is a thing that they tell you. It's something to keep in mind. Someone in that situation is going to be panicking, and it's going to make it more difficult because they're going to be working against you because they don't realize in their panic that it is actually in their best interest to calm down and let you save them. Mm -hmm. The thing that people take away from this for some reason is that you should let the person drown because otherwise they're going to drag you under. But what you actually are supposed to take away from this metaphor is that you need to be a strong swimmer and be prepared for this to happen. So that you are able to overcome the panic of the other person and you know proceed to save their life as opposed to just let them die. So this is the thing. Helping other people can be difficult, and you need to be prepared for how difficult it can be. But if you are prepared and you're given the correct resources, it does not have to be something that threatens and damages you. But, you know, we just have this weird bias that just keeps letting this, it perpetuate itself. And unfortunately, we're kind of well seeing the outcome of that right now. Well, we have a narrative that is very well demonstrated in this episode of noble self-sacrifice. It is better to help someone if you are sacrificing yourself in some literal way. So if you help a person and die in the attempt, it is seen as better than if you help someone and are safe and fine and enjoyed it. You have to put it all on the line, otherwise it doesn't mean as much? This is something we see in those kind of no true altruism arguments. If you enjoyed or got something out of altruism, then it wasn't altruism. If you helped someone and it did anything other than have a profound negative impact on you, then it wasn't actually helping or altruistic because you got something out of the experience. Yeah, that's crap. As long as you know, it doesn't matter if you are also benefiting from you know the what you're doing here. You know, the altruism is about what you're doing for the other person. Well, see, the argument on that side is just a way to say that everyone is actually selfish, so being selfish is okay, because if you help someone, you got something out of it, therefore you are also selfish. Ha ha, I'm very clever. Yeah, that's just, that's just such a lame argument, honestly. There is something very compelling, especially being raised in this in this society, that you have about the idea of self-sacrifice. Like, there's something that we like about that story, that this person went in and sacrificed themselves in order to save others, which sometimes does become necessary in very extreme situations. But it's also something that we use a lot in, like, for this example, uh, we'll get into more of this otherwise because it was a pretty crummy argument they were making, but the whole idea of this is that Jim had to learn to self-sacrifice in order to save her planet 
which is something that we really love because she's supposed to be, I don't know what, but we always have this with like, this person is innocent or irredeemable in some way we often do it in like disaster movies where you know the irredeemable prisoner has to sacrifice themselves for the good of the community and in death has cleansed their sins or what have you so there is something that we really love about this self-sacrifice argument it's probably very tied to our ideas of individualism where You know, the self-sacrifice gives you such control over the situation because you can fix anything as long as you are willing to die for it. And if you couldn't fix it, then maybe you're just not willing enough to sacrifice in order to fix it. But that's not really how the world works. (laughs) There is a lot you can still do that doesn't destroy you, that can make everybody's lives easier, you know, save lots of lives in the process. And that's kind of universally true. And so to reduce doing any good to only these situations seems to be encouraging that we sort of encourage these situations to be prevalent in our world, which kind of sucks. Um, and which then leads to, well, situations like, well, you know, the, you know we, we could salute our heroes, but we don't have to get them, you know, the, the, the equipment they need or, you know, you know we're going to, uh, you know, say we're going to support the troops while without you know, bothering to pay for any body armor when we send them overseas, that sort of stuff. Because, you know, know, if they're willing to put themselves out there and sacrifice themselves for the rest of us, then if they do, then cool, they'll be able to celebrate their deaths. If they don't, then we're going to celebrate their lives. And either way, we don't have to care what actually happens to them. Yeah, if you celebrate people and call them heroes and all the other stuff, like a hero doesn't need equipment. A hero just needs to sacrifice themselves. Yep. Or at least be willing to, yeah. And the more that you inconvenience them, the less compensation you give them, the fewer resources you give them, the more you force them to sacrifice, the more heroic they become. And so suddenly you got somebody who isn't able to support their family being put you know, in harm's way. And if they die, then we just cheer some more and don't actually do anything to make their lives better. Yep. Yep. <laughs> this is horrible, isn't it? <laughs> So which depressing topic should we move on to next? The uh, ability to help the withholding until a act, sufficient proven act makes you worthy to save or ethical research? Well, I was going to uh, talk a little bit about ethical research, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's get into ethical researching. Yeah. This they did not do. Yeah. Because <laughs> these aliens are basically trying to get a result out of the situation, out of this interaction with Jem and the crew that will prove a hypothesis about what they think is possible with these people. And if they don't see that, they're going to take one action. If they do see it, they're going to take different action. And so this, this very much is an experiment by these aliens on the, uh, the, 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 ver- the other characters. And so there is not really any, well, consent to this experiment being given by anyone involved, which is a problem. So uh, do I want to talk about informed consent first? Sure. So so what is informed consent? It's when you are given as much information as possible for you to make an informed decision about whether you want to participate in something or not. Yes, so you you have to have the disclosure. You have to be able to say no, potentially, uh, as well as yes. You also have to, uh, to have the internal capacity in order to make this decision for yourself. So if your judgment's impaired, you're not going to be able to do that. Let's say you had just been tortured by some aliens for a few hours, so you're not going to be 
in a very right state of mind in order to give a yes, no about anything here. Um, so yeah, they don't, they don't really inform anybody about what's going on until real near the end after they've done most of the stuff. And Jem, since she's mute, might not have any concept of verbal language at all. Yeah, if they even you know tell her things verbally, she's not going to be potentially uh, picking up on that at all. There's no way for her to even signal to them that she understands what the experiment's about. She's just sort of suffering through all this along with everybody else. Yeah, there's even a line when they're torturing Kirk where he asks what they're doing, and they say, if you live, you will find out. As I said, these Jalians are jerk faces. <laughs> yeah, they just have no concept of even basic ethics on this. Which and then, but it's very surprising then that they're demanding this specific sort of ethic from Jem and her species, while they basically have none of their own. It just doesn't make any dang sense to me. That is true. They're showing very unethical behavior while demanding some sort of ethical puppet play from the other people before they're willing to do anything to help. It's almost like they have like a set of rules they're supposed to be following, and these rules don't have things about ethics for for themselves but they do for everybody else hmm um yeah it's kind of kind of unsettling when you think about it um but uh it's this thing about uh, you know in informed consent and things like that it does remind me of maybe one of the most infamous instances in uh, u.s history where that was basically not given uh do, do you know what i'm gonna be talking about Kepwin? I assume that it is the beginning of uh, gynecological medicine, or maybe it's Tuskegee. Ah, uh, that one. We have yeah. a lot of these, or uh, forcing soldiers to march into nuclear explosions to see what happened. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, we got to test the uh, after effects of atomic weapons, so um, we just set one off, uh, go march over there, and uh, we'll uh, check your radiation burns later. And as one can probably tell, since I was able to lift, lift three of these off the top of my head, we do this a lot. And, um, and some of them are very much, you know, you know, clearly like, you know, the military is like, ah, oh, we have to do this. Other times the reason for it's a little more, eh. and you also have uh, like the Tuskegee one um, is like they ran out of money for their bogus study, but they kept doing it anyway. It's like, what the hell people? <laughs> And then, it, you know, it took them 40 years for it to uh, come out. And it, you know, it only then did it stop that they, uh, you know, so if you're unfamiliar with that one, um, it's they promised some uh, some uh, African-American folks that they're going to be treating them for, quote, bad blood. And then they proceeded to not actually treat their, uh, them. And a bunch of them had syphilis, which is what they're trying to sort of uh, observe as its later stages happened. And they, you know, kept them away from any actual treatments even after actual treatments were developed and became common in use. Uh, and so for years and years, decades, th these people were suffering with these conditions and they were just not t informed at all that there was another option, that they, and the, that they had basically been lied to from the very beginning about what was happening to them. And so, yeah, they were just kind of lied to for, for decades and, only until after the fact with, you know, this, uh, you know, you know, things came out, uh, public pressure happened and the government's like, oh, we're going to get sued, aren't we? Uh, was uh, anything really done about it? And, you know, still there's a lot of the suffering along the way. And even after the, uh, you know, things started change, uh, turning around and it's just kind of 
Yeah, and then the, the fact that there's multiple of this sort of things going on throughout, you know, our, you know, our history here, it just kind of makes me worry that there's still stuff like this happening. And it's like, oh my god. So uh, that whole do no harm that the uh, Hippocratic Oath talks about here, yeah, they just kind of forgot that. And they didn't even learn anything of value. It's yeah. not like we didn't know what syphilis did. I, 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 I was reading uh, something that maybe suggested that they were doing the experiment to f try to figure out if it was worth trying to cure, but that after they have an actual cure that's pretty good at working, that kind of fell apart, but you know. This is one of the things with these human torture experiments. Mm -hmm. which, they, which is exactly what they are. It's not only the horrible, unethical way that we go about them, which is definitely the main thing. They're also not a good way to do research or learn anything. Exactly. They're not done under controlled conditions. You aren't using any semblance of scientific methodology. The They have all basically been either useless or like I was saying with the early gynecological experiments, which is a doctor who I'm not going to name because he doesn't deserve the notoriety, did a lot of hit and miss trial and error experiments on enslaved women who had no ability to consent to these experiments or not, killed several of them. The ones that he didn't kill and was able to quote unquote cure were in extreme pain through these procedures, and the only reason that he was doing them at all was so that he could use them as slave breeding stock. Yeah. So it's a little bit monstrous, you could say. And there was a statue of this guy in New York until quite recently. I'm, I'm hoping there was an enthusiastic tearing of it down. Yeah, they eventually took it down after years of debate, and they, I believe they either have or will recently replace it with a monument to the victims of this person's horrible experiments i think that's gonna be an improvement yeah so um these aliens of this episode uh, their their whole experiment here is basically worthless as well and it's yeah what were they actually trying to learn see i was hoping i i knew that it wasn't going to happen because it's original series and i really don't i really for the life of me do not know what episodes of this people are watching where they laud this show for being hours of debating ethical issues but i was waiting for the ethical debate to happen because there is a line where they are about to start torturing mccoy and they say we wouldn't do it this way if there was any other way to learn what we needed to know. And I was just waiting for someone to say, well, on my planet, when that happens, we don't learn it. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, this, if you have decided 100% this is the only way to go, then we don't do the experiment still. It's just, you know, the, the, the getting the end result is not worth the journey there. There's this kind of famous example that is something that they've even claimed to have done in the past. But it's something about what is the kind of innate human nature if you removed a human from society completely. So a society of one. It's kind of called the impossible experiment because its basic idea would be you'd have to take a newborn infant and put them in a room and somehow work out a way to feed them and let them grow up in complete and utter isolation, never seeing another person. So I guess intravenous feeding until a certain point, and then kind of, I don't know, 
maybe a robot helper, maybe? I, I have no idea. <laughs> and this is one that's like so horrible that even even way back, everyone agreed that it was completely unethical. Also impossible, because even if you could find some way to keep them fed, people who are kept in total isolation just die. Yes. It's pretty well known. Yeah, your, your mind kind of falls apart, and then you, you kind of give up the will to live. So the idea that you can do these kinds of experiments at all. And we've even gotten to a point where we're saying that we shouldn't do these kinds of experiments on animals, even though we still do fairly horrific things to animals in the name of, of medical experimentation. We're even getting to a point where we're saying maybe we shouldn't be torturing these animals so much. Unnecessarily uh, inflicting a pain in a lot of this here, so let's maybe pull that back a little bit. The general argument that one is supposed to have in this situation is that the amount of pain you're causing the people in your experiment is going to be outdone by the amount of pain that you are saving others later. Which reminds me of another episode of Star Trek. <laughs> so let's get again into a contemporary example where this stuff gets kind of fuzzy because we can point to plenty of examples like this where it's very, very clear cut. We currently, as of the recording of this episode, are working... People are working on trying to find a vaccine for the COVID-19 pandemic that is currently happening. Finding a vaccine is a very drawn-out, possibly dangerous experimental process where all kinds of things can go wrong. We currently just finished some phase one trials in various places. I think the first ones that were done were in China. A phase one trial of any kind of medication is when you give a group of people the medication and see if it hurts them. This in itself is pretty dangerous because you're trying to see whether or not it hurts you. No, no, no. This is to point out that these are people that are not infected, correct? Yes. This is regardless of whether it works. This is simply, does it kill you? Because uh, you know, if you're just going to die because you take the medication, yeah, it's not really worth it. Does it work is phase two. Mm-hmm. Phase two trials present an interesting dilemma in this case because one of the best ways to test a vaccine is something that they call challenge testing, where you give the person the vaccine and then you intentionally infect them with the disease and you see whether or not they get infected. Which, uh, if it doesn't work, then this is a bit of a risk, especially if it's a really deadly disease. Yeah, you can ethically do this if it is a disease that you know either has very limited effect on someone that is unlikely to permanently harm or kill them, or if it's a disease that you can otherwise cure and you're just trying to come up with a vaccine yep. as a preventative. We don't have either of those in this case, but yes. we have such an extreme situation that there are plenty of people who have said that they would volunteer for this if it became an option. And so, you know, you get back to that informed consent thing here again, it's like, Right. They know what's going on and they know the, you know, the situation and how important this could be to save lots of people's lives. And so they are saying, I am willing to do this personally. But you also hit on limits to informed consent because we would never take informed consent for an experiment that would 100% kill someone. Yes. No matter how much the person said they wanted to, no matter what the circumstance, we would never accept that as informed consent. Yeah. So you know, you're basically going to die if this doesn't work. Yeah, that's not going to go. Uh, you know, so you know, studying the, the you know a disease and you know, figuring out okay, this person gets it, they're going to die, versus this person who gets it, they're not going to have any symptoms at all. If you can figure out 
what's you know causing one group versus the other, you could maybe uh, have a trial that is uh, has a very high chances uh, survival rate, even if they do get it. But we're not quite there yet. So you do hit a very interesting ethical dilemma that I don't think we have a good solution to. And even something like this, which we think right now, because the numbers are still coming out, because we're still in the middle of this thing as of the recording, uh, has about a 1% mortality rate. So even if like 1% of the people that you're testing this on have a chance of dying, that's still a fairly large number of people in your study. That's about 1 in 100. And you would need to test it on a few hundred people because there's very, very rare side effects and uh, counterindications. Apparently, one of the things that can happen when you are testing a vaccine is it can make some people more likely to get the disease instead of less. But that can be a fairly rare occurrence. So you need to test it across a wide spectrum of people. So, you know, it like undermines your immune system. So it's more vulnerable as opposed to less. But that's not a 100% thing. So you'd have to test it on a few hundred people. And even low end, if you say you're testing it on a thousand people, assuming a blanket 1% mortality rate, 10 of those people are going to die. Yes. So that is kind of not a good thing to let just happen. But in this case, there's a possibility that saying letting those 10 people die will develop a vaccine that will save thousands of people. The question is it better to have those 10 die or the thousands? And is it just a blank equation there, a cold calculation? Or is there is it a lot more complicated than that? I mean, it's incredibly complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not only are you dealing with straight ethical concerns of whether or not it's okay to do medical experiments with a fairly high likelihood of death, you also run into who has to do those experiments and who feels responsible for those deaths and how are we dealing with the psychological injuries caused by that to the people who had to run these experiments. You know, because, you know, once again, getting back to the Hippocratic Oath thing, that, you, know, you know, generally most doctors are on the do no, no harm thing, uh, you know, uh, through and through. Uh, and the ones you that aren't, you probably don't want anywhere near this sort of thing in the first place. So, uh, yeah. It's a difficult one. It's a very difficult one because you could try to fast pass a, to fast track a vaccine this way, though we don't have a guarantee that it would even accomplish anything. You know, sort of, of panicking and flailing for a cure that it might work, but it could also kill a lot of people in the process if it doesn't. But you can't blanket think about it as numbers because these yeah. are not numbers. These are people. Exactly. And I think I'm going to like to paraphrase fairly badly a Terry Pratchett quote, but it's one that I always liked. I always go along the lines of if you want to save thousands, you have to care about one. Yes, because you know, you know, being uh, valuing human life is if you're going to claim you do, you need to be able to care about any individual person, no matter what part of this equation they're in, and to seek out and try to make their lives, uh, you, know, you know, not in danger. And by putting people actively in danger, that's running counter to that. I don't think that it's ever okay to say. We killed 10 people to save 1,000, because you still killed 10 people. Yes. Now, there are very weird shades of gray in here, because you can still, you can run experiments like this, and you can take every single precaution and minimize things as much as possible, and people are still going to get hurt and die. 
But going into this saying that your intention is to have no deaths and doing your best and still having some is very different than going into this saying, we accept this as a reasonable rate of loss. Not sure what to follow up with that on. Well, I feel like we've kind of plumbed that one enough to be depressing. Yeah. The final point that we have here is these aliens, as presented, say that they are fully capable of saving this species. Yes. They say that they can only save one of the species in this system, and presumably they have run these experiments on other species. Maybe this is how they're trying to choose. Perhaps. No one says, but as we have... As we are being presented, given no other additional information, they have the ability to save this species that Jem is a part of. And they're saying that they won't unless Jem can demonstrate herself worthy of being saved. So why does it have to be like this? Well, one can make a very strong moral argument, which has been made many, many times, that having the ability to help and the intention to help, but withholding that help because the person does not meet some arbitrary standard you have is the same thing as causing the harm. Yes. <laughs> withholding your help for no reason is the same thing as causing the harm in the first place. Yeah, it's a criminal negligence, isn't it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but it's not even that, because something like this is something we do we say, we're not going to help this person with their homelessness where they don't get any kind of welfare or state help because they have a drug problem. We've taken a moral stance on this other thing they have that is probably helping them cope with the other problems in their lives. And because we morally disagree with it, we are withholding help. So we're going to punish you through this method. And that's kind of a jerk move, honestly. It's this idea that there should be a moral test because you giving help is such a big monumental thing, which kind of gets back to our help and sacrifice point earlier. If you are going to sacrifice to give help, the other person has to be deserving of that help and thus deserving of your sacrifice. Uh, if they're not willing to uh, lay down their lives for you to lift your finger, and your massive sacrifice, that is, uh, then they are not worth it on this sort of calculus. And yeah. Which once again runs into the s similar problems we were talking about earlier with thinking of help as equivalent to sacrifice. Because in the example I just gave where you can refuse aid to someone because of their drug problem, we we're giving them money. We're not giving them your life. There's no inherent amount of self-sacrifice that's happening in these government welfare situations. You're giving them money. Now, we count that as a massive freaking sacrifice for some reason. We think of that as a huge sacrifice because we think of all help as a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice. You're giving them funds. But, you know, folks, you know, sort of want to instill this idea that anything, you know, any reduction in their own personal bank account is just the worst thing ever. And so, must be fought with, you know, tooth and nail, 100%. And it's not, money's not that important, guys. And we also have the data to support this. This is not just some blind ideological thinking. I know that I'm an idealist and that people hate idealists because we're all naive and whatever. But we have data to support this. If you help people first without moralizing and without cutting off the help, the things that you have moral problems with go away. Like, wait, I my life no longer sucks horribly? 
I can like find my way in the world again without, you know, worrying about where I'm going to sleep or eat tonight. Wow, I guess I can get off. I can, you know, start working on addiction, uh, get a shower in and, uh, you know, start doing all the stuff the society wants me to be doing. Yes, we have plenty of pilot programs where you, for example, using the same example, you take someone who is homeless and regardless of what else is going on in their lives, you give them a place to live and you give them enough food to live and you give them support in job finding and other things. And they never get kicked out of that program, no matter what they do. And it improves their lives and they get back on their feet and they're able to support themselves. And usually things like drug problems and other things start to go away. You're now able to, you know, get, you know, have a life that's more than just that, 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 that uh, overriding problem, that, that big, you know, the drug problem or the alcoholism or whatever. Uh, You you got, you got more things to worry about and things that you can find pleasure in. Uh, You're not just this or suffering. And especially when we do something like that, when we give people assistance and say this assistance is going to be taken away the second that you slip up or do something wrong, that's so much extra pressure. Mm-hmm. That's such a big hurdle. And then we also get upset that they're lying about it because of course they are. You told them yeah. if they used if they used drugs again, you were going to kick them out of the only thing that's keeping them keeping a roof over their heads. So of course they lied about it. And uh and and then you have this whole enforcement mechanism for that, which you know, if you want to talk about wasting money, which you basically are when you're you know forcing everyone to take drug tests constantly. Yes, I'm just trying to feed my family. Why are you, you know, asking me for a cup of pee? We live in a really kind of depressing world. You know that? Oh, we really do. Let's let's try I to th- fix that. Yeah, that would be favorite. All right, but we've depressed people long enough. We've pushing the end of the episode we could go on about these super depressing issues for literally years and we not even finish then i would recommend uh you go look up some political podcasts if you want to hear that seen on radio is really good that's all i got <laughs> <laughs> well i think as far as we're concerned it's time to get less depressing and go to the galaxy's favorite game show Hey everybody, welcome to the most depressing game show in the universe right now. Oh dear. Uh, we got a slightly different voice today because I've been drinking some water for the tap. And uh, we got uh, three uh, uh, prizes to give out today. The The first one is the Teaching Aliens How to Love Award, which is kind of more in a matter of speaking this time, I guess. Which goes to Kurt McCoy for teaching Jem the art of compassion and love for another. I think that's what they want. Uh, I, I can't even finish this gap. What, what, what do they win? They get some moralizing health class videos, because if you're going to teach them to love and torture them at the same time, there's nothing better than abstinence-only Christian education from America in the mid-90s. Oh, dear. Uh, I don't think that's going to work for either of these two, honestly. Ho-ho! Our second prize is the Fooled You Prize, which goes to the Vians for making illusionary images of Scotty and a couple of random red shirts. To uh, bring everybody's hopes up for a few moments, uh, what do they win? Well, they're so good at this, they get the holograms. Because I told you I'd bring back a gem in the holograms joke. 
Hooray! <laughs> also, you need the hair and the kind of David Boeing lightning bolt face paint and the bracelets and the sparkly pants and vests. You need the full glam rock. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to say, Gip, when you're, you're very truly outrageous. Truly, truly outrageous. Our third and final prize for today is the Share the Pain no Prize uh, Award, which goes to Jem for basically doing this as her whole thing. What does she win, Gepwin? Jem gets some band-aids, so you can do that instead. Yeah. It's okay. Wasn't that bad of a cut. Yeah, you don't have to, like, internalize your own, you know, the, the, the actual physical manifestations of other people's injuries in order to heal them, lady. You can, like, just put a band-aid in. Man, this yep. episode sucks. <laughs> Well, hopefully we'll get to some better stuff later on. But in the meantime, thank you all for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! So then, what do we got coming up next time? I don't, I don't even know if I can pronounce this. Elon of Troyes. Yeah. Elon of Troyes. 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 Not Troy. Not Ellen of Troy. Elon of Troyes. Troyanus. Oh, they go to the planet Ellis to pick up Elan, the dull man of Ellis, accompanying Ambassador Petri of Troyes. What is with these names? (laughs) Um, They're being space Greek Russian for some reason. The, the the Elysian Council of Nobles and the Trojan Council of Tribunal thing has come to marry Elaine to to the Trillian king. What? <laughs> Surprise! We got arranged marriages again. <laughs> what? So okay, does does she fall in love with Kirk and then not want to do the, the thingy? Probably. It's like the that's the worst uh, next gen episode. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that episode also kind of was like, uh. but I, I've not seen this episode of the original series. But I yeah. have a feeling that the next gen probably did it better. Probably we'll as bad as that was. Probably. Yeah. I don't know what is going on here. There's a Klingon battle cruiser. Yeah, there's all kinds of. I don't understand the things I'm reading here. Sure. Well, maybe we'll watch the uh, the episode and we'll be uh, enlightened and find a, a, a an uncut gem in all of that. Uh, I really uh, hope that we get through this. Oh, I didn't mention, for some reason during this whole episode, the aliens also call her gem like it was her name all along. Well, they didn't really show up until they named her. So maybe that was like their trigger for activating. It's like, oh, they've named her. That means they've consented to this bullshit experiment. Yeah, they named her like a pet. Oh, man. Anyway, I have no idea what's going on. They show up on the bridge wearing a wedding dress. There's jewels. There's some sort of Klingon-y thing. This, this sounds bad. This sounds confusing. Um, should, should I just say experience beige and call it good? Yeah. We'll figure out what in the world's going on with this thing next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, yet more arranged marriages, I guess. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, 
iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware the next time you step off the transporter that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>